Good morning, everybody. Uh, I just thought that sounded appropriate for being in the Department of Education <laughs> facilities. And as I remember school, that was the, about the response that the teacher would get. <clears throat> well, in uh, 1859, Charles Blondin made his first tightrope crossing of the Niagara Falls. Now, Niagara, I don't, I don't know if you know this or if any of you have been privileged enough to be there. I haven't, but it's said that almost 20% of the world's fresh water flows over Niagara Falls. So that's an extraordinary amount of water. You couldn't drink that much. Blondin was a, a French tightrope walker, and he never used nets or ropes or wires or anything because he firmly believed that if he had that feeling of safety or security, he would fall. He had to be dedicated to his task. Throughout the uh, 1860s, uh, there mustn't have been Netflix or other things for entertainment, so people would go to Niagara and he would walk. Right? And it's reported that at times there could have been as many as a few thousand people kind of on the banks around the place watching. He did several walks. Once he walked out there and cooked an omelette in the middle, he drank a bottle of red wine after um, pulling it up from a boat that was down underneath. He was a pretty impressive guy, genuinely gifted. And... Um, I guess the kind of guy that drew a, a response from people, either uh, good or bad. It was reported that uh, Mark Twain, an author, famous author of the day, was repulsed by him because he thought that all he was doing was kind of in, inciting the spectacle of imminent death. And that's why people were going out. And that was a horrible thing for Mark Twain. It's kind of like, I guess it's, 1860s extreme sports, you know. One of the most famous of his feats that was reported, and the details get hazy, it's 1860s, all right, you can look for it on the internet, there's some reports, but whether or not it was in a wheelbarrow or on his back, we're not sure, but we'll go with a wheelbarrow because there was points at which he did actually wheel a wheelbarrow across the tightrope. It's reported that as thousands were watching, he asked the crowd if they believed he could cross back with someone in the wheelbarrow. Now, they've watched him. They've seen him do it. And the crowd is all there, and they're like, yes, we believe it, Blondin, we believe. And he's reported to have asked, well, who's going to climb in it with me? <laughs> I mean, don't know if I believe it that much. Anyone else confident? So I, I love this story because one, he is a real guy. He's a real tightrope walker. But two, it just it speaks so strongly to how we deal with belief and understanding and faith. 
So it's one thing to understand and believe the skills of the man. It's one thing to give assent to something like that. But it's an order of magnitude significantly greater to give your life to that, to attach your very life to his. Do I really believe it? I wonder this morning if Paul is kind of making that same point. See, Paul, I think, knows that it's too much to comprehend. The list of blessings that he has just gone through in the first 11 verses, I think verses 3 through 14, are just, they're, they're too much for a human to even truly understand how great the blessings are that God has given to humanity. I think Paul knows that, you know, you could watch Blondin carry someone across Niagara, and that would be an epic day, possibly one of the greatest days of your life. But he wants you to be the one that's in the wheelbarrow, living the fullness of the gospel life. You see, the Christian life isn't one of just observation and knowledge alone. It's not the knowledge, and I don't know why some people do this. It's not me, trust me if I had it, but someone that has a bottle of Grange, just sell it away, never to be drunk. I mean, I don't have one, but if I did... (laughs) So surely that thing is meant to be drunk, right? It's not meant to just be there... Christian life is meant to be lived and it's a life that begins right now in the present and it's the risen Lord Jesus who guarantees us into that life the deposit he places a deposit of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing our journey from now into eternity that's Paul's point Let me quickly remind you of what he says the gospel of the good news has accomplished for us in Jesus, in in short form. He's already said, you are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Before creation, before anything existed, you were blessed to be holy and blameless. He has adopted you into sonship, with pleasure. I love those little kind of frills that Paul puts on it. So, I mean, he could just be adopted into sonship. That's great. But God did it with pleasure. He actually wanted that. Redemption, forgiveness, again, lavished upon you. It's not just a little bit. It's everything. Knowing the mystery of his will with pleasure God loves all of this. A deposit of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing your inheritance. So just just so we're all on the same page here, because it, it bears repeating, we are talking about Jesus Christ, the eternal one, the only one, the unique son of God, God who created all things in heaven and on earth and sustains them. God who holds the power of life and death. God who created Eden for his people and even in the midst of their rebellion has created the means of forgiveness, redemption and reconciliation so that they will live with him forever. 
This is the God that we're talking about that has just blessed us with these things. So every spiritual blessing is immense. It, it is beyond human understanding. I can't talk myself into understanding that. And that God was pleased. It brought him joy. It was his delight to adopt you as his sons, giving you the fullness of his kingdom and, and inheritance. And so Paul prays. Now, technically, as, as we just look at the structure of the verses, we see thanksgiving upon hearing of the faith in the Ephesian church in verses 15 to 16, and then it's followed by a prayer of intercession for the Ephesian church with some explanation at the end. And it's important that we connect it back to those opening verses because, as, as I just did, because Paul begins with the statement for this reason. That's the reason he's going to pray for them, because of the extraordinary things that he's just said that Jesus Christ has given to them. Because of all that they have in Christ, Paul is full of thanks to hear that they're living out their faith, demonstrated in their love for others. And it's a thankfulness that leads him to kind of double down and pray more. He wants their strengths to increase. He wants them to know and understand in even greater measure. So he prays. What for? Well, for three things specifically, which we'll spend some time unpacking. But just a quick word before we move there to emphasize something here. There is an implication here that we need a work of God to fully comprehend his blessings. I keep asking, verse 17 and 18, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. The spirit is the agent of revelation who interprets God's activity and enables believers to appropriate what God has accomplished for them. Right now, in line with his later prayer in Ephesians 3, 4 through, uh, 14 through 21, which you'll come to see in a few weeks, I think it's right to understand that the spirit of wisdom and revelation here is God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's not a prayer for an extra measure of the spirit, Believers already have the Holy Spirit, but it's a prayer that the Spirit of God who resides in you would give you greater and greater understanding of what God has accomplished for you in Christ. And for this to happen, Paul prays that the eyes of your heart will see and understand. Now that's because the heart is understood as the center of the, the inner being or our inner self. It's like when you're trying to get to what is the very core of the human being. There's a lot of ways we could try and describe that. And Paul picks the heart, asking for our eyes, for the eyes of our heart to see and understand, is to have understanding at our deepest, most core level of our being. It's a prayer for spiritual insight. 
We need spiritual revelation. Now, thankfully, it's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, right? The spirit of wisdom and revelation. It's not a secret knowledge. It's not a hidden knowledge. Just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's beyond grasp. That's precisely the role of the Holy Spirit here. And Paul's intercession is that we will be granted that spiritual revelation. His prayer is that you will realize what he's just said. So, a request of you in these coming weeks. Pray this. If Paul's praying this for you, pray it for yourself. In humility, ask God for, for help. Ask him for greater revelation in your inner being of these three things. Firstly, Paul wants you to know the hope that he has called you to. What is your hope? Why is it important? Hope is future-oriented. It's the assurance that these blessings just spoken of are really yours. The tension lies in the realization of them. Now in Christ, yet in full upon the return of Christ. Because we live in this kind of now and not yet age. The, the scriptures don't give us the hints all along the way. Of, Should I expect this now or when Jesus comes back? It's kind of like we've, got to, we've just got to figure that out. We live in this tension. Right? It's genuine hope that rests on God's choice of you, your calling. That's, that's significant. It's not a calling that you've chosen. It's the call that he has given to you. It's a hope that is therefore grounded in the greatness and the power, the love of God who has chosen you. Hope is powerful because assurance of our future frees us in the present. Let me say that again. Hope is so powerful because assurance of our future frees us in the present. It provides you with complete freedom to respond to your present circumstances in the knowledge that your eternity with God is completely secured. So Paul's understanding, we can assume, is that the more you realize this, the more you know and have hope in the calling that God has given to you, the more you'll proactively make decisions that are centered on that truth. You won't be reacting to the present. You won't be driven by the present or the temporary, but you make your decisions with eternity in mind. The greater your assurance, the greater your freedom in the present. This is why Paul is praying that we'll have greater knowledge of our hope. So it allows me to completely orient my life around the gospel and the calling of God. So I can then ask the question, what are God's priorities? I can consider them and I can pursue them. And I can pursue them even in areas that have actual cost in the present knowing my guarantee in the future. 
That's kind of the now and the not yet, right? Because we know that sometimes there is cost in the present. If my hope is found in the present, this is the challenge, if my hope is found in the present, then I'm going to seek to preserve that. It's what I do. I'm good at that as a human being. I'm going to seek to secure blessing in the present. I'm going to seek to preserve things that make me feel good now. An eternal hope grounded as a co-heir with Jesus in the kingdom of God, is freedom to pursue the concerns of that kingdom now. So know the hope to which God has called you. Pray for a deeper revelation and pursue that understanding. Secondly, the riches of his glorious inheritance... Let me ask you this. What what is it that the one true, sovereign, all-loving, all-powerful God could possibly receive of value if he were to have an inheritance? I mean, what could you conceive of that he would need or that would please him? You. Have you. Have you told yourself that? Are you even able to say that to yourself? Do you believe it? Now, I'm not trying to overinflate your ego here. It's not a statement of your greatness. It is a statement of how God sees you. You... We are his inheritance. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. That is remarkable. I can't think of anything more remarkable in this passage, to be honest. That's what if Sammy and or Ada asked me that question later that I am God's inheritance it's not a prayer that we will know the riches of the inheritance that we will receive we can read about that in other parts of the scripture it's there and that that is exceptional but there's something I think even more exciting here the knowledge that God considers his people the church those that have responded to his calling through the power of the gospel, are his inheritance. And that can supercharge me. The Lord has chosen me. The Lord longs to be with me. The Lord longs to be with you, his holy people. You should feel loved. <laughs> you should feel special. This isn't, it's not pop psychology. I'm not just trying to be up here to give you a you know, positive message and send you out, but this, it's true. You should walk out these doors floating a little bit higher this morning. God's inheritance. Again, I think there's an implication 
in this of, of how we should orient our life. The more we understand that we're God's inheritance, the greater the freedom, I believe, that there is to live in that blessed assurance in the present. Thirdly, he wants you to know the power of God. There's so many places we could go with that. Power for what? What are you talking about? He wants you to know that the power he's talking about is the power that raised Christ from the dead. The power that is above all other powers. Whatever it is that he wants us to know about this, and I don't, I'm not exactly sure. We, we kind of speculate. He says more about the kind of power it is than the power that he wants you to have it for, if that makes sense. He's unpacking the depth of that power. So what is it? And then what is the implication of that? What's the power? To be simple, if this is simple, it's certainly simpler than the the text. In the Greek, in these two sections, you've basically got one sentence in the first, verses 3 through 14, and one sentence, verses 15 through 23. He's got away with words. He talks. What is the power? Well, he's talking about God's supremacy and dominion over every authority in the spiritual and earthly realms throughout all ages. That's all. This is power that is might. And it's telling us that God's power is the mightiest. It's uncontestable. Proven in Christ's resurrection and exaltation above all other uh, competing claims. It's some kind of power. So what's the implication of it for our present life? Why does Paul want you to know God's incomparably great power? I'm assuming it's for more than the ability to answer possible future pub trivia questions. I'm going to assume it has some relevance to my life right now and implications for my eternal future. So what are they? This, you've got to understand this in Ephesians. Often we um, are talking rightly about the work of God that is ours to come in the future. Ephesians is very centered on the present life. There's that constant tension. But Paul really is wanting them to know right now, all the way through the letter, right now. Ephesians, more than any other letter, addresses the powers and God's power. That's why it culminates in chapter 6. You've got Paul addressing the spiritual battle that believers are engaged in. 
Now, for the, I think for the first readers in the Ephesian church, this was probably somewhat self-evident. Ephesus was said to be the seat of the Greek god Artemis. Artemis was the daughter of Zeus, the god of the hunt and the wilderness. The Roman equivalent was Diana. And now you've just seen why I've given you that little historical input, because I wanted you to see how Ephesians addresses that Jesus has supremacy over Superman, Batman, and the rest of the Justice League. <laughs> if, you didn't, if you didn't know that Diana was Wonder Woman, you wouldn't have got that joke. But I, I'll just help you. No, no, sorry. No, this was a world that saw very little difference between the physical and the spiritual worlds. There was a fear of and a deliberate attempt to interact with the spiritual world and to claim to be a follower of the supreme God yet have no advice to people living in fear of spirits just wouldn't work. That's very real in much of the world today. You know, just as a side, I saw in the Herald this morning, good old Peter Fitzsimons. I, I, I like the guy. He's got a bugbear against Christianity. You know, he, he wants everyone to know that Australia's becoming less and less religious. So why should we have so many prime ministers that are Christian? Well, don't tell Peter, but statistically... Australia might be on the slide, but the rest of the world is on the up. The world is becoming more and more religious. That's the truth. Now, a Jesus that has no power for Tibetans who spend much of their life oriented around appeasing and interacting with spirits, it's not our Jesus. Give me a gospel that, of this glorious God who can't deal with the spirits. People in our world need to know that Jesus is the supreme God, more powerful than others, and his power can remove any influence from their lives. Now, how do we bring that into ours? Because we, in Australia... He's right in some way. Religion is on the slide. We, we very much want to separate, if we believe in the spiritual world, we want to separate it from our world here. We don't see much influence of one over the other. I'm going to leave that for you to, to try and figure out, but... I, I think Paul here really, if I can boil it down, he's saying, firstly, there's nothing to fear. There is a need to not dismiss Jesus' complete power and to not be naive to the spiritual world which does afflict people, including in our neighbourhoods. I've seen that. The greater point 
I think, and the, the reason that all of these blessings Paul has spoken of and the reason that we've got hope and, and we're God's chosen people, the reason that he's unpacked this power more than the others is because it's the anchor. It's the reason that God is able to accomplish all of these things. And he wants you to know that that power is at work in you, in his church, bringing to complete fulfillment all of the promises that he's made. That's extraordinary. See, friends, the gospel is not just about a future hope. We use the word eschatology, that's the big word, but kind of our, our understanding of the future, the end times. The sections of the church that want to bring all of the end times into the present. And a fancy word might be over-realized eschatology in theology. Right? That heaven is now. I'm not sure the scriptures really send us in that direction because if heaven was now, there's still a lot of suffering, sadness, evil. I hope heaven is better than this place. Yet there's that tension that it is now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ that's what the gospels are telling us Paul wants you to understand that the gospel is good news for your present life Jesus changes lives now he resets entire life orientations he frees people to pursue the kingdom of heaven I started with the story of Blondin because this requires not only an understanding of how but a step of faith to live this life who wants to be a follower of Jesus that acknowledges and believes, but is really afraid to kind of hop on his back. And that's the beauty of God. It's kind of saying, hop on my back. Or look at other metaphors throughout the scripture. He's saying, build, build yourself into me. Or yoke yourself to me. You know, the master oxen. He's saying, I will do it all. I'm doing it. My destiny is secured. Come with me. Jump on my back. Jump in my wheelbarrow. Don't be someone that understands the gospel but is still just a step back waiting, unsure. Can I really attach my life to this? That's why we need faith. Because I can't humanly conjure up that. My heart's intent as a human is to always secure my present circumstances. 
And I think Paul gets that. That's the prayer. Pray. Pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened to know the hope that God has called you to, to know that you are his glorious inheritance and to know that his incomparably great power has been given to you, the people of his church, to follow him, to live life, to be with him. Let me pray. We pray for these things again, Lord. We've read them. May they be our prayer that you would open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that you would give us that spiritual understanding in the very core of our being. Holy Spirit to human spirit that we would understand more and more the hope that you have called us to and that we, your people, the church of Christ, are your glorious inheritance and that you have invested in us the power that raised Christ from the dead in order that we can follow you now in the present all the way home to eternity with you in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.